0: And let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. This is such a weird little text. Tucked in between the story of Emmaus, which I will completely admit when I was drafting the, um, schedule of upcoming scriptures and hymns that we were recording, I thought this was. And it was only when I went back and read it and went, oh, that's not that. Huh. Oops. But it's tucked in between that super familiar text of the disciples on the way to Emmaus recognizing Jesus in the breaking of the bread And the mention of the ascension that comes at the very, very, very end of Luke's gospel. There's this. There's this odd little scene. And in many ways, this particular chunk of text doesn't so much function as even a resurrection appearance. I mean, that's already sort of happened in a lot of ways. But it gets the disciples out of the upper room where they are still locked away and out to the hillside where they can witness the ascension. That's sort of the function of this particular bit. It puts Jesus back in with the disciples after he vanished from Emmaus. It's really hard in a lot of ways to preach on transitional texts like this. There isn't a lot of meat on this particular set of bones. And yet, it is also one of those little stories that contains in the tradition we have built up around it more than it would seem on the surface. Because this is the sort of little text that, when you read it in itself, doesn't seem to contain a whole lot, and yet has provided fodder for debates between theologians that have nothing to do with the practice of faith and everything to do with maintaining orthodoxy and right belief. Correct belief something we do really badly in our United Church of Christ, quite frankly, and I am grateful for that. Because something tells me that Jesus would weep if he knew how much ink and indeed how much blood has been spilled in debating whether the resurrection is a spiritual or a bodily reality. I wish I were joking about that. Or worse, in defending the supersessionist reading, the anti-Semitic reading, of the idea of Jesus as the fulfillment of scripture. Which can only lead to an anti-Semitic understanding that the Jews are incapable of reading their own scriptures correctly if they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. You can see where huge chunks of this text, admittedly written as Christians and Jews, began to diverge later on in history can be used to feed that anti-Semitic reading, and I think Jesus would not approve. Jesus would weep not just at our insistence on arguing over petty points of theology and engaging in religious bigotry, but also in prioritizing philosophical debates over the continuing embodiment of the ministry which he called us to continue. Indeed, a lot of the history of Christianity is caught up in debates about how we should believe rather than in how we are called to live, probably because it is easier and safer to ask how we ourselves will be resurrected in the end times, what will happen to my body, my soul, after I am dead and gone and in that level of uncertainty, than it is to try to ensure justice and compassion for the bodies that are living in the here and now. But the awkward truth that we have to grapple with in this Easter season is that Jesus was crucified because he told us to care for one another. Jesus wasn't killed for the philosophical debates that he had had with the Pharisees, but over the practical ministries that called the power structures of the world into question. And when we put ourselves into the debate about a bodily resurrection, perhaps it should not be around the question of what will happen to our own bodies. Perhaps it should not be with us in the role of Jesus in this story. But the question should arise about what we will do with the bodies that are crucified and appear before us anyway. Every Easter season I hear some variant on the theology of blood atonement. It starts circulating in email forwards and in Facebook posts and in all over social media and even into the paper cards that you see splattered across the um, card and stationery section of Hannaford or Walmart or Target. And it drives me up a wall. That... Because blood atonement is the idea that God needed Jesus as a sacrificial lamb in order to wash away our sins. I mean, even our own hymns say that on a regular basis. And that drives me crazy, too. Every single Easter, it drives me up a wall. This focus on blood. Because it is, on its very face, absurd. Yes, your pastor is a heretic. We're just going to run with this one today. This year, the one that circulated and that really drove me crazy was the story of a professor. Why do these always take place on college campuses? I don't know. Professor who had the star athlete do 10 push-ups in order to earn a donut for every single student in the gigantic lecture hall. All right, that's the story that was floating around this year. And I saw it as an email, and I saw it as a Facebook post, and hmm... Professor had the star athlete of the school go up on the stage, do 10 push-ups, and for each 10 push-ups, he handed a student a donut, even the students who didn't want one, even the students who objected to the cruelty of the entire setup. And of course, it got to the point where the athlete suffered deeply with each push-up, and the students were begging for it to stop. The whole idea, of course, was that Jesus bought our salvation by suffering even unto death, as the saying goes. And that somehow forcing a student to do push-ups for don- in exchange for donuts is supposed to somehow convert a whole bunch of heathen students into the uh, belief in Christianity. I can't really see that working, but we go with the basic concept. Of course, the thing is... Is And the problem, the very fundamental problem with this whole concept, is that even within the Jewish temple structure, where there were, in fact, sacrifices made, and there were, in fact, animals that were killed as a part of the faith tradition, those sacrifices were not made for the sake of atonement, ever. That was not the idea. Sacrifices were made as an acknowledgement that what we have is not fully ours, that as hard as we work as humans, the richness of our land and the health of our flocks is often, usually, outside of our control. The sacrifice, the giving up of a part of our labor is the acknowledgement and gratitude for what we have. It is a way of ensuring that we do not hoard everything as though we alone were responsible for its creation. The giving of sacrifice is a response to all that we have received without having earned it. Never in all of tradition was it a way of buying God's love or forgiveness or salvation because God is not, never has been transactional that way. And the very idea that God would force suffering would require death as some form of redemption flies in the face, not only of that tradition, but of everything that Jesus himself taught us about grace and about justice and about the kingdom of God. And honestly, I am not sure why anyone would follow a God who would inflict suffering and call it love, because that is a God who is blatantly abusive. And that is a theology that does tremendous harm in our world. Atonement theology, like the philosophical debates about bodily resurrection, however, it's not really there to help us become better disciples. Part of its function, part of its function is guilt, admittedly. That's another sermon. But part of its function is to help us hold our faith at arm's distance, to allow us to debate theology with no skin in the game, Atonement theology allows us a transactional God, a God who acts like us. Once we have paid for a service, it's done. We don't need, you know, we don't need to continue engaging in that transaction. So atonement theology allows us a salvation that is already paid for and in which we do not need to continue to participate even if it is simply to respond to the unearned gifts of God. But Jesus wasn't crucified in order to give us a forgiveness and a grace we hadn't earned. It isn't a transaction. Jesus was crucified because he taught about God's grace. Jesus was crucified because he taught that God's grace is freely and abundantly given to each and every one of us without us having to earn it. There's no blood required. There's no suffering required. That is not and never has been the point. Jesus was crucified not because Jesus had to suffer in order to redeem us, but because the concept of that free grace available not only to the powerful, but to us all was too frightening a concept for the powers that be. We are called not to pay for that which we are given freely, but to live in response to that free gift, to live in ways that extend that same grace, that same generosity into a world that is deeply broken. We are called to respond to that which we have been freely given in ways that put an end to suffering and violence and abusive situations. Not in ways that perpetuate them. And when Jesus said that, the powers of this world needed to crucify him for it. Because suffering and violence and abuse are profitable to those in power. Jesus was killed because he told us to care for each other in ways that the authorities of his time were not doing. Indeed, in ways that the authorities of his time were justifying themselves in not doing by codifying exclusion and choosing order that comes through fear over justice that is the embodiment of grace. Jesus was killed because the authorities of his time were deeply invested in not loving everyone in using threats and fear of violence to maintain themselves in positions of power and comfort, in creating suspicion between oppressed people so that they did not find the unity to turn on their oppressors. Jesus was killed because he threatened the power structures, because he sought to undo systems of fear and exclusion. Jesus was killed not by an abusive God who demanded blood, But by the human sin that prefers cruelty and violence over compassion and mercy. So, what does it matter? What does it mean that we have this little tucked away corner of Scripture that proves, that has Jesus take the time to really, tangibly prove a bodily resurrection? Atonement theology will tell us that he's directing the disciples to see his wounds, the blood of his sacrifice, and the proof of their redemption. But that's interpretation. That's not here. That is not in the text that Jerry read. And it's not the context in which any of them would have existed. He pointed to his feet because ghosts were known by floating above the ground. And he pointed to his hands because you could tell a ghost because they don't have bones and flesh. So when he showed him, showed them that his feet were flat on the floor, and when he gave them his solid flesh on bone hands to touch, it was not for the sake of demonstrating his woundedness, but of showing them his wholeness, the healing to which God longs to restore all who have been victims of violence. Because this isn't just any resurrection appearance. It's the resurrection and the appearances after it that are in Luke's gospel. And it points back to the entire thread of this particular book of the Bible, all the way back to the incarnation, the God-made flesh that is more fully narrated here than in any other gospel. This is the one that we get our Christmas pageants from, for the most part, other than the Magi there in Matthew. This particular appearance, all the way at the end of the book, points us back to the truth that God cares about bodies, human bodies, our bodies, here and now, and not just after death. God cares about feeding bodies and clothing bodies and housing bodies and healing bodies, the bodies that we inhabit now, and the bodies that all too often carry the wounds of human sin and violence. Jesus' feet on the floor, his warm, solid hands, point the fearful disciples, the ones who had abandoned him to the violence of the authorities just a few days earlier. But they point the disciples to the life lived in God's grace, in which bodies that are crucified are bodies in which we find the living God. Jesus' request for sustenance is not just the proof of his reality, but the reminder of how we can care in real and tangible ways for bodies and communities that suffer, that are crucified, that long to be made whole here and now in this world and not just in some eternal afterlife salvation. But of course, it is not simply Peter and James and John, who are intended to be the recipients of this particular resurrection appearance. Jesus appears embodied whole to all of the disciples who came after, all of us who have borne witness to the grace of God and the violence of human sin, all of us who might prefer the safety of philosophical debates, over the daily choices about how we live our faith in a messy and embodied world. For we are not Jesus in this story, as much as we might want to be, as much as we often want to be Jesus in these stories, and as much as we might want the reassurance of what will happen to us after we die. In this particular story, in this particular moment, we are the disciples. We are the people hiding in the upper room, afraid of all that we have just witnessed. We are afraid of association with the ones who have been crucified. We are afraid of the suffering that the world will inflict upon us when we call out the injustice of the cross. Whether it's on a hill outside Jerusalem, or at a gas station in Virginia, or on a street in Brooklyn, center Minnesota. We are afraid that our suffering will end, will be the end of us. We are afraid of the powers of death, the weaponized, militarized, authorized violence that will sacrifice humanity for the sake of property and lives for the sake of profit. We are afraid because the powers that are in our world here and now maintain their power through our fear. And so we gather in upper rooms and we run from the reality of sinfulness. We refuse to bear witness because seeing it makes it real and forces us to take a stand. And we are afraid because the crucified appear among us, speaking a peace that is not the fearful order and law and order of the oppressors, but the justice of God's grace made real in this world. The crucified appear among us, asking to be believed, asking to be nourished, asking us to work for the healing of all of the bodies in our world, for they are the body of the crucified Jesus, and in them we bear witness to the sinfulness of humanity, while in us they seek the presence of that grace which God has given us freely and in abundance They seek the presence of that grace which has the power to overcome death and to heal the woundedness that our world so often embodies. For the fulfillment of the scriptures is not in the redemption of the world through the crucifixion of Jesus, no matter what it is that we've been taught. That's way too simple, isn't it? The fulfillment of scriptures comes through the healing of the world through the embodiment, the taking into our own flesh of God's grace, of the gift that God has granted us from the very beginning. The fulfillment of scriptures comes through the courage to stand firmly on the side of those whose bodies are sacrificed to the greed of humanity. The fulfillment of the scriptures is made known in us when we see God in the dehumanized, when we care for the bodies that God inhabits here and now, even as they are crucified, even when we are afraid. For we inhabit a resurrection world, despite our fear. We inhabit a world in which God's grace calls us out, knows that we are afraid, and sends us anyway. We inhabit a world in which God calls us to believe, not in the human rigidity of orthodoxy, but in the intangible possibilities of a kingdom reality made real in our love and in our mercy and in our grace, in our participation in the world that God has continually dreamed for us and the possibility that it could be right here and right now. We inhabit a resurrection world as witnesses to the power of compassion over the power of death. As children of the God who cherishes even our frail, imperfect, seeking, hoping bodies. We inhabit a resurrection world as disciples of the one who fed and healed and wept for us, even in the frailty of our humanity. We inhabit a resurrection world by the grace for which God did not require our suffering, but which calls us to bear witness such that we might work healing, such that we might participate in the ministries of life and peace for all of the bodies of this world, which God so dearly loves. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.